Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. This is the home run question. So I'm, I'm going to start with a rule of thumb. If your listeners don't hear anything else this entire time, here's, here's the rule of thumb that you know, there's math behind it. I'll just tell you what it is. And that is for the total educational experience, undergraduate experience, they shouldn't borrow more than they think their starting salary is going to be. Hey y'all, what's up? It is Eric here. Before we hop into the episode for today, I just want to remind you that this is a two-part conversation. This is part two where we actually talk about the funding of college. Also, three quick favors for you. If you find these conversations helpful on college planning, go ahead and share them with somebody else that you think would find them helpful. Second, if you have not yet subscribed to our show, go ahead and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, every Thursday morning, you'll be the first to get our latest episode. And then finally, go ahead and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Good, honest reviews will help Matt and I deliver to you better episodes in the future. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to the Building Us podcast. I am Eric Garcia, certified financial planner and financial advisor, and as always, joined by my distinguished guest, Dr. Matt Morris, couples counselor, family therapist extraordinaire. Matt, in our last episode, we had a great conversation with John Hupolo. He's the um, uh, founder of Invite Education in My College Corner. We talked about college and college planning, and we're going to have him back on this show to talk about college funding. This is pre kind of planning for college during college and then after college. So I'm looking forward to this one. This this is where I get a lot of questions from, from clients. Yeah. You know, and this is so interesting to me as a, a college professor, I'm a full-time college professor and really have no idea what it costs to go to my college. I don't know. And I, I sometimes will hear students talk about uh, that, you know, their student loan debt or paying for college or financial aid. I don't even know where the financial aid office is actually, but I hear people talk about that. And, and yet nobody talks about it real specifically because it's, it's a scary thing to talk about. It's private. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of Mm. uh, anxiety around talking about money. And so I'm really excited to have John back, uh, to talk about the resources that, that are available to students and families for paying for college. Welcome back, John. Professor, thank you. It's great to be back with you. <laughs> Professor. <laughs> it's, Professor. Uh, no, I'm actually, uh, uh, Matt, I'm not surprised to kind of hear you frame it that way because a lot of us feel that way. You know, we talked last time about, you know, professionals, myself and Eric sort of doing this for a living, feeling like you're in the headlights to a certain extent, you know, am I answering that question the right way? And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of devil in the detail. And when we're talking about money, those students are sort of almost conditioned not to talk about money, right? It's, uh, you just mm-hmm. don't do that. So um, yeah, let, let, let's talk about uh, paying for college because that's what, what I love to talk about. And not only that, the landscape is, it's like shifting sand. It's constantly changing. You know, we, we were talking, we were talking off air here about we have a new administration. What's, what's policy going to be around higher education? Is, is there going to be some level of a college education that's going to be, you know, uh, 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 
free uh, loans change, the FAFSA's changing, all these things are changing. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, it's like almost like, it's almost like don't tell me what I need to know until I need to know it because it might change. Yeah, that, that's true. And then the problem with that is you find out something that doesn't really help you. And then you're, you wasted all this time when you can actually been doing something, right? So, um, but you're right. I mean, there, there's no right answer to this. The, the, the one, let me just start by saying the one thing that I don't think will change is that families that save some money for college are better off than those who don't. Right. And you know, we talked last time, our favorite saying at mycollegecorner.com is saving a dollar today is better than borrowing one tomorrow. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I honestly yeah. believe that it's not, it's never too early or too late to start saving. So let's just say this sort of lay the groundwork when you talk about some of that. But saving, I think, is important. There's a myth out there that if you save too much, you're going to be hurt in the financial aid process. And I said there's a myth out there because it's a myth. Um, the reality is uh, there's a, the way the formulas work. There's a very small and we can talk about this in a lot more detail later, but there's a sort of small penalty. But you know, it's, it's like literally a couple percent. It's you're much better off playing the financial aid game and trying to win that uh, than not. Uh, so th- this idea of the, the shifting sands, it started uh, an election cycle ago, uh, sort of like in 2016, when you know a lot of folks started talking about, well, you know, great. This is when Bernie Sanders was like, you know, really starting to bang the drum and Elizabeth Warren saying, no, we have to have free community college. We have to have free college. We have to forgive $1.5 trillion of loans. We have to give all this, you know. And so this put it in the minds of people. And I, I had this specific experience myself where I say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of like, you know, ratchet up our loan borrowing because they're going to forgive all this anyway. So I might as well just, you know, go get it. And I don't want to be the fool who doesn't. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, hmm. here we are five years later. Nothing's happened. Right. And, yeah. you know, but this administration, yeah. there's a lot of energy around doing something. Um, so it's hard to know uh, what's actually going to happen. There's 1.7 trillion of student loans right now. 1.7 trillion. That is so that's a lot of zeros. It's a lot of zeros. Um, you know, and and so the the the, the obvious problem here, and, and Matt, you know, as a professor, you you probably deep in the math on a lot of this stuff. You know, just the the idea that 1.7 trillion is such a huge number, nobody can think about it. Um, but and that 1.7 trillion. Like forty-five million people, right? This is mm. not this is not dollar signs. These are people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. if you have ten thousand dollars of debt that you can't pay, one point seven trillion doesn't mean anything to you. What you care about is how am I going to pay the ten thousand? I don't have a job. The pandemic's yeah. here, and there, you know, what do I do? So, I think that that's the idea. Is like this whole thing about college. We talk in a macro sense of these big numbers, but you guys know because you're yeah. you're talking to families. It's a family business, right? It's very deeply personal yeah. every step of the way. Yeah, and and for my students, um, this these numbers, whatever they are for the particular student, these become weights on their back. I mean these these are these these this debt constrains them in a lot of cases. It it feels like they they won't get out from under it, and so it is very personal. It definitely affects how people can live their life after they get the degree. Yeah, and, you know, kind of before we get into too deep in this conversation, I want to I want to highlight something, John, that you said because I I want to, in a certain way, as, as we talk about the realities of paying for college and paying off student loan debts, I, I want to give people a little bit of grace here, and and it's really not that complicated. Financial, good financial principles haven't changed over time. Um, people who save 
people who live below their means, people who pay their debt off, people who don't um, who don't try to keep up with the Joneses, they're always going to be in a better position to handle things financially, whether it's an emergency or whether it's college. So I think that um, as you as you look at this idea of paying for college and how daunting it is and, and this giant mountain of a, of a cost that it is, if, I think if you employ those those really fundamental foundational principles of, of financial management, it's not as scary as, as it otherwise could be. Well, amen to that. You know, I'm, I'm a personal responsibility guy. So um, when I hear these horror stories and then I dig in a little bit, almost every single time it's because there was a series of really bad individual choices, almost always hoping hoping that somebody was going to come and help them out rather than having sort of responsibility for it and saying, Hey, what this school is not the right school for me because I really can't afford it. Right. Or I, I really can't like imperil my retirement so that my kid may or may not graduate from this particular college. Right. And, and to me, there, there doesn't have to be a student loan debt crisis. I think there has to be student loan debt because when properly used, you can apply that to get the leverage, the investment, and get a return on that. When improperly used and you're taking it excessively, I say the student loan should be the last resort, not the first option to pay for college. Right? When you go through all the rest hey, of it, say, and you say need- that. Say that one more time. I want. I want to stop here. Say that one more time. Everyone, listen up. What did you just say? Yeah. So student loan should be the last resort, not the first option to pay for college. I when feel like it's the other else- way around. Yeah. I feel like exactly. I feel like people. Yeah. That, that, that's right. They go in and say, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to take the loans and I'll worry about it all later. And $1.7 trillion later, there's what happens. And so here's a really interesting statistic. Um, something on the order of two thirds of all student loan uh, defaults offer balances of $10,000 or less. And like 40% of them are $5,000 and less. So what does that tell you? It's very simple. Students go to school, they don't like it, they drop out, they say, or they, or something happened, they left, okay? And they're stuck with these loans for an education they didn't get. So they come back and say, guess what? I'm not going to repay this. I don't have a okay. job and I didn't get any value out of it. So I'm just going to leave it there. It's not, it, the, the newspapers love the stories of the hundred, $150,000 of debt. And that, that's not a nice headline. It's actually not the story. Right? The story mm-hmm. is that those students had made better choices before going to college. They wouldn't have that excess of debt and they wouldn't have that uh, default hanging over their heads in many cases. Hmm. That's interesting. So like the stereotype is it's the uh, the kid who wants to become an attorney and goes through law school and accrues all this debt. And then they're running a, a, a nonprofit for 30,000 a year and they have all this debt. That's that's not that's not the that's not the norm. The norm is just the the average person walking around with 10, 5, 10, yeah. 15 thousand dollars of debt. Yeah, that scenario you described. There are plenty of those folks out there, and you know. So the the, the, the when you say lawyers, though, the, the problem with the lawyers is they they're too smart for themselves sometimes. So they go to school, and say, "Oh, I'm going to declare bankruptcy and get out of this," but you can't do that with student loans, and they figure that out a little too late. But but you know mm-hmm. that that sort of case aside, no, that that's about right. It's 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 not it, generally it's not that that profile as the biggest defaulting problem. It's really the non-completion of an undergraduate degree is leading to the biggest defaults. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the non-completion. So they they started out investing in a profession uh, in a degree that would lead to a profession that they didn't finish. And so now they they really can't access the value of that profession to pay off the debt. They're having to just 
fund it or default on it. That's right. And, you know, we use a statistic on, on the other show, 60% of kids take at least six years to graduate. That means 40% are not graduating, right? And those include community college folks. You know, the, the completion rate at community colleges is really low. The completion rate at some of the four-year schools is pretty low. And it's those are really, the, that's really the nut of it. So, you know, you, you have to think that that's a, a demographic, a profile, and a, an issue that, that can be solved. And I think, Eric, the, your clients and Matt, your clients who are coming in, probably in a, in a little bit of a different situation, right? They, they have probably more financial control over that situation than, than some of these other families might have, right? So the question is for them, how do they keep themselves out of trouble? Because some of the, some of your clients are getting themselves into trouble by making bad choices as well. But I think that those families, some of them or most of them have the ability not to get into a problem if they thought about it right. The, you know, if they, they got the facts lined up in advance and said, this is what we can actually do. Not everything's going to go as planned. You know, Sally's going to drop out of school once in a while or she's going to change majors or whatever's going to happen. But it doesn't have to be a financial disaster when that occurs. Yeah. If they were using some of the some of their financial principles to pay for college that they use every day in their life, if they if they save and don't get into too much debt and live, you know, buy things that are affordable to them, if they did that with college, it would work out much better for them in the long run. I believe so. Yeah. So what I read the, a statistic. Uh, I read a statistic once, and and I, I mean, I got to find the article, but it said that um, kids who work through college to help pay for college tend to outperform kids who don't work through college. Is that? Am I making that up? That I did I see that? No, I think that's sort of directionally accurate. And actually, it goes back to some of the pre-college savings programs. There are some programs for disadvantaged families where they literally, if they save. You know, a thousand dollars before this child goes to school, um, they are so much more vested in that experience because it, you know, is meaningful for them. And I think it's the same thing, you know, for, for kids who are working. It's that whole thing about the, 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 the student, you know, now the young adult, no longer your toddler has responsibility here, right? And the more skin they have in the game and the more it's real for them, the, the more success I think that they can have. And they can define that success how they need to. But the whole idea is making sure they have the right tools to do that. And, you know, sure, working is good, but, you know, you don't want an undergraduate working 60 hours a week, right? So a lot of people say if you're working more than 20 hours a week, that's probably not good. You know, they, they, they should put themselves in a situation where they can be students first, and they're using one of those arrows in the quiver to pay for college, which is a part-time job. You know, that's yeah. totally reasonable. I, I worked uh, through college and I, I had a job one time at a restaurant um, and it was great because I got to eat at the restaurant. So that was that was helpful to me and the food was good. But secondly, uh, there were lots of other employees there at the at the restaurant that wanted to be college students, but weren't. They were always saying next semester, I'm going to take some classes. And so the effect of it on me was that I didn't want to be those guys. I wanted to actually finish my degree at some point. So working during college uh, wasn't a direct, like I didn't use the money. I don't think that I made working at my part-time job to pay my tuition. I didn't have to do that, but uh, I got these other valuable resources by working. It was a great experience. So what are, what are John, what are some other, you mentioned arrows in the quiver. What are some tools that families have uh, access to that they can use to pay for college? Yeah, so, um, you know, just sort of run through them and then we can talk about any of them in more detail. But, you know, you start where I started with savings, right? You can start that when a child's newborn, 
Uh, Louisiana Start uh, 529 Savings Program mm-hmm. is really good. There's some great tax deductions available for that as well. Uh, there's also a separate uh, smart K-12 program for, you know, K through 12. So just starting, like, again, you said, start saving, I think is really important. Um, but then as you get to that nut where you say, okay, here we are, look at the financial aid package, right? That's, that's number one. And you can actually start um, as soon as, uh, let's say, freshman year, sophomore year in high school, you can start using um, some of these tools. We have one at mycollegecorner.com called Financial Aid Calculator. You can put in some information. They'll give you an idea. Again, just an idea. And that's all you really need of like what your expected family contribution would be. What does the government expect you to like pay for college? So, you know, check that out early, right? So use those tools. Uh, but it, the the sort of way to pay is fairly limited. You have savings, you have um financial aid in the forms of grants. So here's the, the key for all the listeners, right? If you see scholarship and grant, that's good. That's actually real aid because it doesn't have to be repaid. Um, on a financial aid award letter, you'll also see like a work study award often, which is great, but it's nothing more than a guaranteed job. It doesn't actually reduce your um, bill. Um, you might be able to go and find another job that pays you more. But again, it it's characterizes aid and it's a good, I think, placeholder Matt, like you're saying, to say, okay, you know, a student can work in school. Maybe they don't need the money to pay tuition, but it's good beer money. It's, you know, mm-hmm. not everybody stays on the meal plan. So they go out, you know, you, you have, you need some spending money. So maybe that's takes care of that part of that, that expense. Yeah. Um, the other is, um, what I think is a hidden gem in the, um, in the quiver. And this arrow are these payment plans. Um, so as you guys, you, you're saying you have juniors. So when, when your boys go off to college, um, I bet your food bill is going to go down. Uh, I bet your gas uh-huh. bill is going to go down. Right? You're going to have more disposable income as a parent uh, because the kid's not living in the house, most likely. So what you can do is say, let's just say it's it's $100 a month right? that you're going to save. So now all of a sudden, it's $1,200 that you can pay over the course of that next year right? and then not have to take a $1,200 loan up front. So I think these payment plans and every school offers them, it comes with the bill. You look at that flyer and say, oh. If I can pay $50 a month or whatever, that's less of a loan that I have to take. Um, and then, you know, you get to that last part about um, loans, you know, the last option, uh, not the, the last resort, not the first option. Um, and then there are different kinds of loan programs that you can avail yourself to. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you breaking it down um, in that way so that I can, as a parent, uh, think about the different components. You mentioned the 529 plan. I had never heard of a 529 plan until, you know, I started asking around, like I have a kid who I want to be able to help go to college one day. Um, you know, I, is it best to just put the money under my mattress or put it in my savings account? And, and it was my friend, Eric Garcia, co-host of the building us podcast that said, you know, there's something out there called a 529 plan. And so I, I opened one, um, what are some what are some of the benefits of saving money for college using a 529? Yeah, the Congress in the 90s looked at this problem and said, we've got to help families save. And, you know, the way you help them save is make it easy. So um, the, there, in every state, there are programs. Louisiana has a program called the Student Tuition and Revenue Trust Start. Um, and that for as little as $10, you can open an account. And the, the beauty of this at a really high level is that you put the money in, and you don't pay any taxes during the course of that growth period. So if you start with a one-year-old, by the time they get to college, you know, you've had all that earning over time tax-free. 
And as long as you use the distribution for what they call qualified higher education expense, which you know, Eric will tell you is just about everything, you know, computers, technology, everything, not sorority fees, I found out, but I like to tuition. Yeah. Tuition, room and board um, fees, fees, computer expenses, you know, yeah. there, it's pretty broad yeah. definition of what you can use that money for. As long as you use that uh, for a, a qualified distribution, it's tax free on the way out as well. Um, so it's it's really, you know, fundamentally set up that, you know, the big uh, thing was, well, what if my child doesn't go to school or I have money left over? Right. And they also built in some flexibility there to say, you know, you can change the beneficiary. Um, let's say my kid doesn't go to school. I can make myself the beneficiary. I can make a sibling a beneficiary. I can make, you know, close relatives a beneficiary. So it's really a pretty cool way to, to save for school. And if all else fails and you decide, you know what, I really need that money, um, you pay taxes on the earnings and you pay a 10% penalty. Um, so when you look at that and you do the math, um, it probably comes out, and Eric, maybe you've done the math for some of your clients, but, you know, that that is just not a strong enough reason to say it's not a good idea to save for college using these these plans. They're really, really well designed. And it you, you mentioned it started in the 90s. So there's been, uh, you know, going on 30 years or 25 plus years of this. And so these have been good vehicles to uh, to use for saving money for college. It's a it's a good vehicle. What's what's great about the 529 plans as well, and and we've talked about this as parents. You know, you, you're you're trying to save for college as life is starting to get really expensive. So there's a lot competing with your money. 529s are really good if you have grandparents who want to help um, leave a legacy or help help their grandchildren go to college. Um, the 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 ability to put money into these plans is um, basically as as big of a check as someone can write. They can put into these plans, um, so th- they do make a great option for not just parents to save, but also for grandparents to help fund. Yeah, no, no question about that. And sort of two other really important points, three other really important points, because it's a state-based program, the state gets buying power out of this. So right now, Louisiana residents have access to Vanguard funds, you know, really top-notch funds at 27 basis points. So 0.27% is the fee. So it's a low, low fee. You know, this it's really like designed to help people save, right? Uh, so it, it's the state gets involved and they're monitoring this. And then they have at this access to different sort of age-based portfolios or based on your risk profile. I mean, one of the things we talk about is event risk. Well, what happens, you know, if the market crashes when I have a senior in high school, the way these portfolios are set up that they sort of automatically shift the risk. So the the younger the student, the more equity risk. So you have more earnings potential. And as you get close to college, they start to shift it automatically into uh, more of a conservative investment. So there'll be cash there. So they try to protect you as best they can. So you get professional money management basically without having to pay for that. So I think it's it's really just you know really well crafted. Um, they're about thirteen and a half million of these five twenty nine accounts open across the country and. Almost like a third of a trillion dollars, a little more than a third of a trillion dollars saved in those accounts. So you have to feel good that, you know, that people are taking advantage of it. And we touched on something before, and, I, and it's a little bit of an arcane point, but it's, this is the home run point here. Um, Eric, I think you asked about, you know, how, um, how my um, savings affects financial aid. So this is the home run point with the 529. Yeah. If I had um, $10,000, let's just use this uh, $10,000 in a brokerage account, the FAFSA form would say, 20% of that, $2,000 would be available to pay for college. 
where they're saying for 529s is 5.64%. So it's $564 is available. So that's that whole question we asked at the top of the show, you know, does it really pay to save, right? So you're much better off from a financial aid perspective to have that money sitting in a 529 than you are in a brokerage account. Uh, how do they come up with those formulas? Because you would think 100% of the money in a 529 plan is slated towards college and something in a brokerage account or a savings account might not, you, you'd think the weighting would be different. Yeah. And so this is the Congress and the government. So, you know, it's always wacky when they come up with these different percent, like 5.64. I can't tell you what the genesis of that was, but I will tell you um, there, uh, we talked at the very top of this show about the changes. And one of the changes they're talking about is removing the 529 as an asset when you're doing the FAFSA calculation. Um, so that could be coming soon. Again, uh, there's a lot of water flowing really fast under these bridges right now. So I don't want to say definitively what's going to happen, but there's a big discussion around FAFSA simplification and taking those 529 assets out of that calculation entirely. So is there, I'm curious, um, is there a look back period? So my kid's about to go to college and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get real creative here and, and I'm going to shift my assets really quick. Can you do that or is there a look back? Um, there's a look back. So you want to do that um, before you're a uh, student, basically a sophomore year. So what happens okay. is uh, for this class that right now is, is the seniors that are going in, they're going to start school um, in 2021 into 2022. So you're looking back to like the 2019 tax return. Um, so it's a two year look back. The other point that's really relevant here, I'm glad you brought it up, is that because it's a two-year look back, and the reason, by the way, it used to be one year, and they moved it back to two years because they want you to have easy access to your tax return. So when you're filling out the FAFSA form, there's this tax retrieval thing, and so you can easily go back and just pull the information in, right? But when they did that, they realized that, okay, what happened two years ago might not be the financial situation of family. And, you know, 2020 with COVID and all the economic ruin that occurred across the country, there are a lot of families that are going to use that return from two years ago. And guess what? Father doesn't have the job anymore. There's been a death in the, whatever it is, there's an ability then to go and and have an appeal to the financial aid uh, office. And Matt, those, uh, your students on your campus, they know where that office is and they should trot down there and say, by the way, uh, when I filed my form, you know, it's not a, it's not realistic about what's going on in my family today, and they can get some relief that way by filing an appeal. Awesome, thank you for that. While, while we're on, up. while we're on the five twenty nine as part, I, it sounds like what y'all are talking about is that when you're filling out the the FAFSA form, there there may be a mythical concern that if I save too much, it'll hurt me on the FAFSA. And I, I gather what you're saying, John, is that no, that's not that's a myth. That's not accurate. That it's hard to oversave for college in, in a way that'll penalize you, certainly in a yeah, 529. Yeah, Eric, I, w- I would agree with that. I, I think that's right. And, and the other um, really important point, Matt, is that the FAFSA um, calculation is highly income driven. Um, so, you know, high earners um, can't expect a lot of financial aid. And again, it's on based on a current income basis. It's much less driven by assets. Um, it's really important, though, to also sort of throw on the table, not to complicate this conversation too much, but some schools use uh, the CSS profile, um, which is another way to determine. They call it institutional financial eligibility. So institution of the school. So they have their institutional methodology. And a lot of times on that form, it's more asset dependent. It takes the value of your home into account and some of that other thing. But I think for the majority of folks who want to just sort of keep it above level 
from a simplicity standpoint, let's talk about the FAFSA and say that it's income dependent mostly. And the assets are play a much lesser role in that calculation of what the government says you can afford to pay for college. And I have one more question on the savings a- aspect. Is there a, is there another vehicle that is a competitor to the a, a viable competitor to the five twenty nine, or is and this is for both of you? But is the is the five twenty nine the best place to put your money, or are there some other viable competitors? Yeah, I, there there is um, the Coverdale Education Savings Account, uh, which was also sort of tax advantaged, but there was an income limitation in that program of one hundred ten thousand dollars for singles, and also um, was there was the amount you could put in there was limited. Um, the the there uh, not to get too crazy about it, but there was one advantage to that, which is you could use it for K through twelve. You couldn't do that at five twenty nine, but they also changed that law about yep. two years ago. So, Eric, my sense is since that came to pass, the 529 really is the, the better vehicle for just about every family at this point. Yeah, I would say the 529 plan or just save, you know, just the idea of saving. You, know, you, you kind of said that earlier, just save. If you don't want to commit to a, a 529 plan because you don't know if your one-year-old is going to go to college, just save. Don't spend it. Yeah. Have an account that is set apart from everything else in in. Uh, and, and save. So, but yeah, no, five, the 529 is kind of like the the Cadillac of college plans right now in terms of tax advantage, in terms of the ability to put a lot of money into it. Um, How it's yeah. calculated in the FAFSA, that sounded really uh, like it, like the FAFSA privileges 529 plans over other savings plans. I think if you, if you look at a lot of, a lot of like law and, and the law, the tax law that surrounds a lot of these plans, they're really designed to encourage people to save, you know, from IRAs to 529s. The government, the government wants you to save because they don't want you to be dependent on them at the end of the day. So whether it's retirement rules or laws or or college savings, they want, you know, John talked about personal responsibilities. They want to encourage as much as possible people to be, you know, responsible for for these expenditures. Yeah, you know, I'm going to give the state some credit here too. Um, when the government, the federal government, set that out, so we want to fig- we want you states to figure this out. What the states did really smartly was that they went back and said, also, guess what? You know, not a lot of people are qualified to determine what the best investments are here. So they went to the fund companies like Vanguard and others and said, you've got to make this like you know really a no brainer for people. Like, come in, do these age based portfolios, so they don't have to look. The government does not want you like sort of game tracker, you know, to trading these accounts day in and gate day out and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you only can actually make two investment switches per year. So they really don't want you trading this account. And uh, I, I say good, you know, so this, you should not be trading this account on a day trader basis and they won't let you do it. So the states have been really smart about trying to make this a great vehicle for folks. That is interesting. They don't want me uh, taking my kids 529 and day trading it and buying game GameStop and GameStop uh, Bitcoin and stuff like yeah. that. No Bitcoin. <laughs> no Bitcoin. <laughs> so um, we're, we're talking about savings, which in your quiver analogy earlier was kind of arrow number one, but arrow number four was about student loan debt. And, and I, I hear you saying it, it's the last option, not the first option, but talk about debt a little bit. Um, I know lots of my students don't, don't, um, have families that have tons of money sitting around to pay for college. You know, it's not like Mitt Romney once said, just if you need to pay for college, just go borrow it from your parents. A lot of my students don't, don't aren't in those situations where they can do that. 
Um, and so they are having to take on debt to pay for college to get this degree that is, you know, mental health. They want to help people. They want to be, they want to work in the community. They want to make a meaningful contribution to society. They're not going to make a ton of money, but they are, it is a, it, it is a, a profession that you can live off of. So how do you help people make decisions around taking on student debt? Yeah. And, and this is the home run question. So I'm, I'm going to start with a rule of thumb. If, if, there, if your listeners don't hear anything else this entire time, here's, here's the rule of thumb that, you know, there's math behind it. I'll just tell you what it is. And that is for the total educational experience, undergraduate experience, they shouldn't borrow more than they think their starting salary is going to be. So if you're going to go to mental health, and I'm at, what, what are folks, uh, you know, sort of undergrads coming out of 35 or 40, somewhere around there? Is that about right? Right. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then don't borrow more than $35,000. Now, here's the good news. For, so um, for your for your your starting salary for one year. Correct. Should should be more, a little bit more than your overall student loan debt. Yeah, that That's yeah. right. That, that, that I, I like that rule of thumb. And when you look at it across the, the spectrum, the average student loan debt, and I always chuckle about this because I see numbers between 29 and 35 or 36,000 as the average debt. So whatever it is, most undergraduate majors will get you to that point, right? And I want to talk in a minute about what the, I know this really smart thing the government's done to help students here, but that overarching, you know, rule of thumb, I think is really critically important for, for students. Mm. So if you're going for electrical engineering, you're going to think you're going to make $80,000. If you borrow 70,000, it's a big number, but that's probably an affordable debt for you over the course of your, your career. Now we're talking undergrad. We're talking about the cost of undergrad. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Just, just undergraduate. And, um, and I'll tell you why I, I really love the federal student loan programs and, you know, I'm not one to love federal programs, but I, I think in, in essence, they've really tried to do the right thing here. And for families that I always talk about smart borrowing, responsible borrowing, not getting in over your head. So the government put some checks in place here. Number one, they said, look, it's unlikely that banks are going to want to lend to an 18 year old with no job and no job prospect. So we're going to set up this program and we're going to be, we're going to be the lender. And we're going to tell freshmen that you can only borrow $5,500, sophomores $6,500, juniors and seniors $7,500. So when you max all that out, it gets to about $30,000 is the most that an undergraduate student can borrow to go to school to get an undergraduate that, degree. That's current? Those are current numbers? Currently. That's right, yeah. currently. Okay. And so they, they put that in place. And then what, what has occurred very recently, so in the last five or 10 years, but very more recently is that there are very liberal repayment programs in place, right? So there are now repayment programs based on how much you earn, right? So you're not going to get yourself in a situation where all of a sudden this becomes, you know, two thirds of your disposable income or, you know, some abnormal, un, unsustainable part of your, um, uh, existence as a, as a consumer. So they've done all of this and sorry for the fire engines in the background here. You guys are, live in New York city. So it's part of life here. Uh, but, but, uh, what, what, what they've done is say, you know, we want to make sure that you have these different programs. And so there are like nine different repayment programs that you can take advantage with your student loan and you can change them. Um, so you get out of school with $35,000 in debt and maybe you have six months. The other thing they've done is said, we're going to give you a six month grace period. You don't have to start paying until you're like on your feet for six months. And so I, what I tell families all the time and students particularly, and Matt, I would, you're talking to kids and they're having any kind of issue. 
the very first thing they have to know is like who their student loan servicer is, right? And, and what kind of loan they have. When I, and I'll talk about what kind of loan, but the student loan servicer, you call that number, you should get someone who can tell you based on your situation, here's the best repayment program for you. And some of those repayment programs extend for 15 or 20 years. And if you can't pay at the end of that, that loan may be forgiven. They just want you to like make that effort along the way. So um, they've done a nice job of evolving that. Uh, the federal benefits are significant for some students who um, are on the sort of the most underprivileged, underserved communities. The government will pay the interest for the students while they're in school. Right. That's an income uh, requirement. You go through, you fill out this FAFSA form and that's how that determination is made. But you can get an, a subsidized loan, which is when the government's paying the interest for you in school. You can get an unsubsidized loan. And for some students, they might get a little bit of each. But for freshmen, no more than fifty five hundred sixty five for sophomores. And as I said before, so they've done a really nice job of saying, OK, we're going to find ways to get money into the hands of students. We're going to find ways to cap it. We're going to try and make it as easy as we can on the back end. But again, it goes that personal responsibility. You've got to like get in and do it and make sure that you're getting out with a degree. Try to get out in four years so you're not running up the bill. What I just told you is they're four years, right? Well, if the students are going five and six years, that means they're going to borrow someplace else. And that's when they start getting themselves you know, on the wrong side of that equation. Yeah. I, I really appreciate all of the, the detail there. And I, 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 I would encourage some of our listeners to even go back and listen to some of those details again, just because it sounds like um, there are there are repayment options that you may not be aware of. And that if you contact your your loan servicer, you may learn some things about how you can repay this in a way that works better for your family. So that I, I really appreciate that. Um, Eric, do you have a question about student loan debt? If not, I have one other question I want to shift to. I, John, I would like for you to address. Um, refinancing student loan debt. You know, that's a, that's a hot topic. You even see like um, during the Super Bowl, there was a commercial for one of the, the debt companies about refinancing debt and student loan debt into one easy payment. And this is, talk to us a little bit of, is that, is that advisable? Yeah. So um, I'm going to just take one step back and then I'll answer your question. I described the federal student loan program. There's another, and that's 90% of all the debt goes through the federal government. 10% goes through private lenders and what we call private credit student loans. That's probably like a whole different discussion. But the reason I want to draw that, dis- that line here is that um, refinancing options can work really well for some folks, but really badly for others. And the devil really is in the detail on this. Um, so at a high level, federal loans uh, can, you want to, as a borrower, maintain your federal loan benefits meaning um, when we talked about repayment plans, there are also some options to stop paying forbearances and deferments when you go to grad school, only applicable mostly in the in the um, federal program. So you want to retain those benefits. So to answer your question, Eric, there are two ways to rewrite your loan. So if I have four or five federal loans, I get out of school, I want to refinance them. That's the big thing. Well, you can consolidate those loans under another federal program. Um, the benefit of that is you roll them all into one payment. The downside of that is you're not going to get an interest rate break. The way that um, that is set up, they take the average of all those interest rates and they r- round it up to the nearest, round it up. So you may rate might go up a little bit. They round it up to the nearest eighth of 1%. But then you're still eligible for all of those federal benefits, potentially including forgiveness toward the end. So that's one set of really important criteria. The refi market and the Super Bowl ads we see 
um, allows a federal borrower or a private student loan borrower basically to go through an underwriting procedure, just like a mortgage. We say, okay, guess what? You know, Eric, you've been out of school for five years now and you have these interest rates that are maybe higher than they are in today's market. We're going to rewrite those loans. We'll roll them all into one loan with a private refinancing option. When you do that, you lose all your federal benefits. The pickup, though, might be in a substantially reduced rate. So I tell folks, you know, and, and Eric is a financial professional, this is where, you know, I would come to you and say, okay, does this make sense for me? You know, you know what my history is. Here I am. If I can reduce my interest rate by three or four points and all of that interest savings over the life of that loan, for some folks with credit scores, and I, I loosely say if you have a credit score of like 730, 740 and above, you're probably going to do better in the private loan market, but be really cautious because you're giving up your federal benefits on the, mm. on the private, on the federal student loans. Yeah. A lot of people don't think about that. That's a, that's a, that's a point that uh, eludes some people. It doesn't cross their mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you know, it's, there's a lot of devil in the detail here. I'll also say this, the Department of Education website um, is really for at federal student aid is really good um, on these points. Uh, they, they, they lay it out really simply. Hey, the last thing that I think is really important to say about this, you know, the federal student loan program uh, starting last March, March 2020 until the end of September 2021, there's zero interest rate on those loans, and there are no required payments. Uh, so, what is I is that COVID related? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's COVID relief, basically. So, this is to me like the biggest potential boon ever for a student loan borrower. Every fifty dollar payment I make pays down my loan principal dollar for dollar. Yep. Um, so it's huge. The problem is only about eleven percent of student borrowers are actually making payments on their loans today. And I think part of that is what we're talking about at the top of the show. You know, we're talking about student loan forgiveness. You know, maybe I won't ever have to pay these loans back. But um, I think paying down the loans uh, dollar for dollar is no better deal around. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, uh, John, you mentioned um, these different ways to fund college and pay for college. We were calling them arrows in a quiver. And another one that uh, hasn't been brought up, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in, is students who shop around for classes or prerequisite classes and might take some classes at, at a at a college that's cheaper or more affordable and then transfer classes to a, a, a university that may be more expensive, more prestigious, more uh, um, attractive to them. What do you think about that as a way of of not having kind of the traditional college experience of going and living in the dorm and, and taking all your classes from that one institution, but kind of putting some classes together as a way to reduce the overall cost. Yeah, that that's great. Uh, I, I love that. And I think Eric framed it at the top of the show. So, you know, what can you do before college, in college, after college to reduce your, your costs? Mm. And of course, you know, a lot of us financial professionals like Eric and I will talk about return on investment. And one way to reduce your return on, to increase your return on investment is reduce your costs, right? So mm -hmm. um, one way to do that is, as you're saying, Matt, you know, go, AP classes, right? You know, that's one way some students can just like get right through and like not have to have so many college uh, credits to graduate. It means it costs them less, increase ROI. Love that. Uh, maybe uh, go to community college. So here's the fly in the ointment on that. And I think it's a great idea. Um, there's this term called articulation agreement. And what an articulation agreement is, is an agreement between like a two-year school and a four-year school. It's really a four-year school saying, okay, if you take that course at that community college, 
we'll give you this amount of credit in our school. So I've had some students yeah. who come up to me and say, oh, you know, I went and then when I transferred, you know, I had to eat 30 credits or 20, whatever it was. And so that's because you didn't plan ahead and say, okay, if this is my plan and it's a great idea, just make sure that your target school, you know how much of that credit they're going to take for you. And I think it's a great idea, but again, yeah, no, a little bit of planning. Don't assume, go in and research, even visit the college that you, you ultimately want to go to and, and, and understand the articulation agreement that they may have with another another university. That's really smart. Yeah. Um, I think you said on the other show, Matt, facts, right? Just get your facts lined up, right? And just know you don't want a surprise, right? You know, yeah. you, the, and, and the facts are there. And by the way, uh, at your school in the financial aid office, there are professionals there who want to help students. They're, that's that they, they do that. Right? They, they want to help students get through and have a great experience. So they'll sit down and say, okay, yeah, this is a good idea, or maybe this isn't a good idea, but they'll give them good advice. Yeah. Uh, and, um, that's something that I wish as a professor, maybe I was a little bit more connected to is, is understanding, um, the cost of, of school and the, 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 um, the fees that people are having to pay and how those conversations are going with the financial aid department. That's really interesting to think about from the perspective of, a, of the teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And John, I love how you, you keep you, you and Matt kind of keep talking about the facts, the facts, the facts. There's so much noise out there. And this is true of anything in the, in the financial world. There's so much noise and there's so much information and data out there. But what it really does, it comes down to your specific situation. What information do I need to make my decision? Not what information does John need to make his 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 decision? Everyone's situation is different and there's value in sitting down with the, you know, the, the, um, the resources, a lot of high schools have fantastic resources and people do want to ask and there's scholarships that are available that you would never know are available if you don't ask. Um, so tap into those resources. We're going to, we're going to put in the show notes here, some of the resources that, that you've mentioned for people to, um, to, uh, to check on and, and follow up on. But man, this is John, this has been fantastic. I feel like, I feel like I just sat through a college course, tuition free, it was scholarshiped you, you know, you, you were very um, gracious with your time teaching both yes. Matt and I taking us to school here. So uh, I'm graduating here from this episode with no debt. Very happy of that. Um, so any, John, any closing thoughts for us? You know what, I'm going to say this. Uh, you just said no debt. I actually think a little bit debt is not a bad thing. Both my girls graduated uh, with a little bit of student loan debt and it was good for two reasons. One, it taught them about having some skin in the game, but also really importantly, an unintended benefit is it really helped their uh, credit score. You know, mm. they got out and then they had to go get an apartment. And guess what? You know, one of my daughters she had like a 770 credit score. And one of my friends, I gave this advice to one of my friends, and he sent me a snapshot of his kid's uh, FICO score. And he said, thank you. That's all. And uh, <laughs> having a little bit of debt that they can repay and they get on, you know, just take it right out of the bank account, auto pay, it really helps set them up to understand that being a responsible consumer is not that hard. That's a really good point. I haven't had a kid go through college yet, but some some of the advice that I've given, and it, it seems to make a lot of sense, is even if you're a parent who has intentions of paying for your, you know, cash flowing your child's college, let them take the debt. Most of the time, the interest is going to be deferred or it's really low while they're in school. Let them take it on. Let them see it. Let them feel it. It's a good. It's a good 
tool. And then after they graduate, if you want to continue to maybe help them um, cash flow or pay off that debt, that's when you jump in. Um, I don't, what do you think about that? Yeah, I love. I co-signed a private loan for my daughters. Um, they were not big loans, but I really just wanted them to have that experience and just like going through the process. You know, with both of them, I made them go through. I sat with them, but they they got on the website, they filled it out, they you know stumbled around. It was a great learning experience for them. And um, on the other side of that is, you know, I co-signed the loan, and and if they needed some help, I would have. I wasn't the primary obligor. One thing I hate about the private plus loan, the, the public plus loan from the federal government is the parent's debt. It can't give it back to the kid. You know, we, we can talk about this for hours, Eric, but yeah, um, we, we I, I think, we, you know, responsible borrowing is like a really good thing. And graduating with some debt and giving kids an opportunity to be great consumers is really important. Well, man, John, I'm glad that um, that we connected by chance. I don't even know how we connected, but I'm glad that we did. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to benefit. Uh, heck, I, uh, Matt and I are benefiting from <laughs> from these conversations that we're having here. So, man, as, I really appreciate as, it. As dads, as parents, yeah, we're benefiting. Thank you. Great. My pleasure. Professor, it was great to meet you. Eric, nice to be with you as well. Thanks so much. Awesome. And remember, you know, Matt and I, we, we talk about relationships, we talk about money, and we believe that it's always a good idea to invest in your relationships. Dr. Matt Morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater New Orleans area. To learn more about his work, visit drmattmorris.com. Eric Garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com. His branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated.